As uh, always, I want to invite you this morning to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. But in addition to that, uh, this morning I need you to take your hymn books out for just a moment uh, and also turn in your hymnals to page 858. In that section you'll find the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, which I'm going to read from in just a moment. But because of the nature of the language, the complexity of it, it will be easier for you to look at that uh, while I'm reading it uh, as well. We'll get there in just a moment. That's on page 858, uh, that section of the Westminster Confession. Today we come to the end of this chapter that we've been looking at now for, uh, I suspect, more than a month, Philippians chapter 3. It has been an impassioned argument by the Apostle Paul against dangerous errors which confront the church, which either were at the present time confronting the church in Philippi, uh, or which were certainly in other churches in the area in which he saw might be there as well. It's a deeply personal plea that he has made to this church whom he loves that they would rejoice in and keep pursuing Jesus. And instead of adding to to his work, that in him they would rejoice and keep pressing on in their faith. And he closes this particular section, this particular argument that he's been working on with one final warning, a warning that includes the costliness or at least the potential costliness of the error for the Philippians and how he has seen that actually already take place in the lives of others, and then with exhortations or two strategies to say, in effect, this is how you can, practically speaking, combat that kind of thing from taking place in your own lives and in your own church. So let me read this section of scripture for us, uh, which is found in verses 17 through the end of the chapter, through uh, 21. This is the word of God. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. We thank you that even now, even in this day, you are about the work that is described here, subjecting all things to yourself. And we thank you for the opportunity to live in this day, in this age, in this country, in this place, in this community, and be part of what you are doing in this world. And we look forward to your completion of your work. 
we look forward to your return. And you shall give the kingdom of this world to your heavenly Father and all things subjected to you and then given to him for his glory. We pray that you would help us now as good citizens of the kingdom to hear the word of our king and to respond accordingly. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. All right, I want to begin today uh, with the reading that I pointed you to uh, in your hymnals. So take a look at it now with me for a moment. It's appropriate I'm beginning uh, this Reformation sermon, Reformation Sunday sermon, with reading from the Westminster Confession, and I'm going to close it with uh, a reading from the Canons of the Synod of Dort. Uh, but this section of the Confession, it's at the, I believe, I think it's at the top of the page you're looking at, chapter 17. The chapter is on the perseverance of the saints. I want to read as an intro to our looking at this passage, both the first and the second section of it. So listen to this. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, that is in Jesus, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Second, this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace. From all which ariseth also the certainty and the infallibility thereof. We can summarize this doctrine that I've just read for us of the perseverance of the saints with a short phrase that I often use both in sermons and in prayer and is used throughout the history of the church to say simply that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of Christ. From beginning to middle to end, it is all of the Lord. We, the people of God, the children of God, persevere in the faith because of the preserving work of the triune God. God the Father in his decree and in his unchangeable love. God the Son in his work of past and ongoing intercession for us. And God the Holy Spirit in abiding with us. We persevere because of God's preserving grace in all of those elements. And without that foundation, we are liable to misunderstand greatly the passage that is before us today when we deal with those who have, and this is to use the words here in the, the confession, those who have fallen away, or at least seem to have fallen away. We have to understand what took place with them when Paul references them, and then strategies that Paul will give to not do so 
but to instead persevere in the faith. I'm going to take this passage today a little bit out of order. Uh, so what I mean by that is I want to look first at the costliness of the error. That's found in verses 18 and 19. We'll look at the costliness of the error and what Paul's saying about it there. And then we'll look at these two strategies that he provides to persevere in the faith, which actually bracket the costliness. So we'll look at then 17 and we'll look at uh, 20 and 21 after we've considered uh, the first part of it. Let me read for us again then as we go in that order, verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. I think we all have them in our lives. At a minimum, we all know of people who might fit this category. Uh, they are men and they are women. They are children, maybe our own children, our own grandchildren, who appeared to walk with the Lord. They appeared to be in the faith. They gave some indications. Perhaps they made a profession of faith at some point. Perhaps they were pastors or they were leaders of some type in our lives, but they do now not walk with the Lord. For some of them, and you can have the people the people that I'm thinking of now flood into my mind. I trust that there are people who come into your mind uh, when I say exactly those things. For some of, them, some of them, it is an open rejection, full of vitriol and hostility towards anything that has to do anything with Christianity. They hate it. They hate the church. They hate the Bible. They hate the talk of Christ and anything else that goes along with it. For others, it was some kind of a progressive theological drift that took place or error that crept into their understanding and took them away from the faith somewhere along the way. For others, their apparent faith was choked out by the cares of the world. They became enamored with things that were in the world and other opportunities that existed in this world. And for others, perhaps it was just this drift. They just started to drift. A little less here, a little less there, and you can't even figure out why, but now after some time, they're not around anymore. You try and call them, try and talk to them, they have no interest in talking to you, and they have no interest in talking about the faith. So when you hear that, and when you think about a passage like this, and Paul thinks about people like that, it reminds me, I don't know what it reminds you of, it reminds me in the first place of the parable of the sower. It makes me think of the words of Jesus and the idea that the seed falls on different types of soil. And indeed, there are some, there's some seed that falls on good soil, it takes good root, bears good fruit, but then there's the seed that falls in the other places, according to the parable. And we see the result of that. It reminds me of Paul saying when he's writing to Timothy, he says, Demas, in love with this present world, 
has deserted. Someone who was with him, someone who Timothy knew, someone who sounds a lot like a co-worker, a co-laborer with Paul. Having loved this world has deserted me. It sounds like the Apostle John who writes in one of his letters, there are those who went out from us but were not of us. So they went out from us. They perhaps were going out thinking that they were going to be teachers, but in fact they have demonstrated that they were not of us. Or uh, in Jude, Jude writes of those, and this is kind of this is kind of the opposite perspective from which John just spoke. John spoke of those who went out from us, but who were not of us. Jude writes it the other way, saying, "For certain people have crept in, unnoticed." who long ago were designated for this condemnation. That's what Paul is writing about here. Their end is destruction. Jude writes, they were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And I remind us of those various passages and the different authors and the different scenarios for each of the ones that I just gave to us from our our Lord to John to Paul to Jude so that we can see how real and how widespread is this danger of which Paul is writing. This is not theoretical danger. This is not fictitious Paul is aware of people. They were people about whom he had spoken, about whom he had written, who had walked along in the trenches or had served in the trenches. And now they're enemies of the cross of Christ. And and let's be clear, Paul is not just trying to do some kind of sour grapes thing here. In this letter of joy for him, this is a cause of weeping. When he thinks about those people, about the wreck that is now of their lives and of their faith. It causes him no small amount of sorrow and of tears. And it becomes for Paul the basis for the warning. Watch out. Watch out for them if they come into your midst. Watch out for their teaching and watch out for yourselves. Hear the story of what happens and what has happened to the faith of, or the apparent faith of other people that you knew and watch out, be on guard. And brothers and sisters, if this was true of the early church with their evidence, faith and zeal and courage to walk with the Lord that we speak of, if that is true of the early church, how much more so is that true of us? You think it's more or less likely to be true of us, of the people of God in our day, that there will be those who give appearance of faith, who will walk along, and that at some point it'll be evident of what is actually taking place. But their falling away, for Paul, has demonstrated that they were never truly children of God. They gave every appearance of it, but they were not. And instead, 
What has taken place is that time and their lives and their words and their attitudes have demonstrated that their faith was a sham, that it wasn't the reality, and now it has revealed what they truly are, which is enemies of the cross of Christ. It's hard to be specific about their identity. Who, who are these people of whom he is speaking here? He obviously, uh, in this section, doesn't name any names uh, for us, but certainly, uh, when we look at this, it certainly includes the people of whom he has been writing, namely the Judaizers, those who would add things to the gospel of Christ, saying that the salvation offered by Christ through faith is not in and of itself sufficient, that we've got to add other practices and other things to that. It includes them, but there are these additional descriptions that Paul provides, and the Judaizers would certainly fit as enemies of the cross of Christ in Paul's thinking and the way he's presenting it. But these other phrases that he uses in verse 19 might apply to any number of errors when he writes, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Any number of errors could fit into those kind of categories. It could be that there are people, and this would seem more to fit with the type of people that Jude was describing, people who take the gospel for granted, who hear of this idea of salvation by grace through faith and go, that's great, I want to I check off that box, I want to make sure that salvation is covered, and now I can live the way that I would like to live. Or people who say, you know what, I'm okay. Because back when I was a kid, I prayed this prayer, I prayed this prayer, my parents called it the sinner's prayer, and now I'm okay. I don't have to go to church, I don't have to live a certain way anymore because I prayed that prayer back then. It could address laziness then that is in association with a so-called profession of faith. It could be the error of people becoming enamored with life, with the riches of the world, with the values of the world. It could be the error of, Paul has been talking about the cruciform life, the cross-shaped life, which includes a life of suffering. And it could be people who, after a while of doing that, have gotten a little tired of that. And who have instead sought out more, if you will, of the good stuff of life. Better opportunities, a smoother way, something that is more presently rewarding something that is better now and thus reject the faith and the church. Those are all potentially eternally deadly errors. Eternally deadly errors. There are other errors that may be a little bit less, a little bit backed off, but could lead to the same place. There are other errors that people have made when looking even at this particular text. Those who, and, and I, I'm not sure how many of these there are now, but those of the Keswick movement and those of the holiness movement who looked at these words and said there is a possibility of perfection for the people of God, that's a profound error that can take place with regards to the gospel of Christ. Perhaps more expressed in our day are those who would take the victorious life now perspective and say that you can do all things now, you can have all that you want 
now. You can have all of the joy and all of the sweetness of things now. And that's a profound error for Paul, a man who says, I haven't arrived yet. And my joy right now is in being cross-shaped, not crown-shaped. Or the error of those who, sorry, over-realized eschatology. For those who read something like this and say, you know what, everything should be great in the world now. And Paul would say, no, that's not consistent with the gospel that I'm preaching to you right now. A misdirected mindset. Okay, their mind is set on earthly things. A misdirected mindset and unchecked appetites and ambitions will corrupt the will and the conscience and they will destroy surfacey faith. Paul has seen it to people, seen it happen to people around him and I think all of us have seen it as well. Have you not? Can you not name the names of the people you've seen it happen to? And it is particularly sad in the people you know, in the people you love, in the people you respect, in the people who were influential in your own life, in your own faith. Paul's warning, watch out for them. Watch out for them. And watch out that you don't become one of them. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that salvation is of the Lord, that we persevere because of God's preservation of us is not in any way supposed to lead us to complacency. If it does, if it has or is doing that in your own life right now, making a kickback and take it easy, then you need to hear the alarm bells. Destruction is not far. doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is supposed to give us a proper assurance in Christ so that we will, well, so that we will persevere appropriately and well. In the phraseology of the Synod of Dort, this is an incentive to, go- <clears throat> pardon me, to godliness, not an inducement to carelessness. So, in light of that danger, and if you dismiss it, if you say I'm one who that just won't happen to, beware, but in light of the danger, Paul offers two very practical suggestions that will help us to, after his example, press on, to persevere in the faith. Both have to do with our aim, our intention, where our eyes are directed, where our hearts are directed. And here's strategy number one. Strategy number one, imitation. Imitation. Brothers join, and brothers here is collective for women as well. Brothers join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This is not the first time nor will it be the last time within this letter that we see Paul speaking so clearly about the importance 
of choosing examples, of choosing people around you to look at them and say, okay, how do I follow what they're doing? So here's the question. Whom are you imitating? On whom are you modeling your life? Who are those people in your life? Let's give just a few thoughts quickly on imitation. What can we say about imitation and this idea of imitating someone else? I think one of the first things we can say, and we should just be honest about this, is that for us, the idea of imitating someone else and how they walk with the Lord, or frankly how they do anything, is somewhat countercultural. It cuts against the grain kind of of where our culture is. We are a, a, a culture where if you talk about imitation, that is seen as what? It's a, it's a lack of creativity, a lack of individuality in your own life. It's a lack of courage because you just do what somebody else does. It's the absence of originality. And that's a heavy sin for our culture. You've got to be unique. You've got to be original. We prize pioneers. We prize people who strike out on their own and do their own thing. And for Paul, at least as it relates to walking with the Lord and in the Christian faith, let's be completely clear, that is in utter contrast with a call to imitate. Imitate me and imitate those who follow the example that we have set for you. Generations, generations of our reformed forebearers learned the catechism word for word. What does that sound like to you? Drudgery, a lack of creativity, a lack of being able to express something in your own language, to think for yourself. You can admit it. It feels like that for us. That's the, that's the, the water we swim in. But for generations, it was, you, you learned this. <laughs> and as one writer says, let, let the devil have originality. Let him have originality. We'll hold on to a truth that has been delivered to us. And once we learn it, then we'll learn how to express it in our own language. But for now... I'm going to hold to the faith that has been given. Listen, here's the reality, and all of us know this. I don't want to take too long in this part of the imitation. The reality is we all imitate, right? We might say that we don't. We might want to insist, okay, I don't, I don't imitate. I am an original. I don't follow after what other people do or other trends that other people set. But we do. We will all be shaped and influenced by the people around us, whether we want to or not, in our speech, our movements, our values, the views that we hold on particular things. The exhortation here is to choose carefully and deliberately and model your life accordingly after people. It requires humility to imitate someone. Because what you are by definition saying is, I need help. I need it from that person who seems to be walking well, and I'd like to follow the path that they have set. It takes humility to imitate 
but it is not shameful in the kingdom of God. See, that's what's happened with the enemies. The enemies have taken the things of which they should be ashamed and making them a thing for glory. But for us, we're taking imitation because it's helping us to walk after God. And that is honoring in the kingdom of God. It yields glory. Whom are you imitating? Maybe it's not one person. Maybe it's several people. Uh, All right, I'm going to say something now that I hope will not sound blasphemous to you, but it's going to go right on the edge of of sounding that way. All of us remember WWJD, uh, what would Jesus do, and the bracelets and other things that were associated with WWJD. And let's take it for what it was. Maybe not perfect um, uh, and certainly critiquable on any number of levels. What, 10, 15 years ago, right? The height of the WWJD Uh, stuff. Well, what Paul seems to be saying here, what he's allowing and, and yea, commanding of us is to ask, what would, in his case, what would I do? Paul, what would Paul do? And do that. Or, now let's put it in, in, in our view, it's fine for us and good, I think, for us to emulate someone like Paul or Epaphroditus or Timothy that we talked about a few weeks ago or other great people from history, but I think someone's living is also part of the point here. So what would, and Rex, she's not here today, so I'm going to use it. What would Marty do? Is not a bad question. No, I see Rex. (laughs) What would Marty do is not a bad question, ladies. Maybe not your only person, maybe not your only point of reference, but it's a pretty good one. It's a good point of reference, frankly, for guys, too. (laughs) What would Marty do? But that's the idea that is behind this, and that's in no way to be irreverent. It's looking at a follower of Christ. We could look at this in other places, and Paul, follow me insofar as I follow Christ. But people around us are doing that. That's what God has in this church, people doing that. And some of that resonates with you when you see these characteristics in other people's lives. What would they do? This is so incredibly practical, it's concrete, it's wonderfully imminent, what Paul is talking about here as a strategy. He's saying, keep your eyes on the godly. Keep your eyes on those who are theologically sound, on those who are characterized by absolute trust in Christ, on those who are pressing on in their relationship with Christ. And follow after them. Follow after them in a cross-shaped life. Look out for them. Do what they do. Do what they do. Ask it to yourself during the day. What would this person be doing right now? And do that thing. Walk like they walk. That's strategy number one. Strategy two sits in, I think, a wonderful juxtaposition to it and is described in verses 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things for, to himself. As wonderful as imitation is, as valuable 
as imitation is. It will only take you so far. Because we are present citizens of another realm. And as much as I might want to emulate you and follow after some peoples in this congregation, our view has to be bigger than that. You with me are citizens right now of this earth and this little country in which we live in this temporal time. But we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, of a coming realm. And we have to look to that coming Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our minds must be set there. Those destined for destructions have their minds set on earthly things. We have to set our minds in a different place. We have to set our view to a different place. And we can help each other, but it's not enough because we have to look up as well. Our anchor of hope cannot be set in this world. If it is set in this world, the bottom is smooth and the anchor will drag. Your faith will end up on the rocks. The anchor of hope and of faith that we have has to be set in the world to come. Where it is secure, where Jesus is. The citizenship that we have in this world is secondary. Our primary, our eternal citizenship is in heaven, in the kingdom of God. And this, for Paul, is in no way escapism. For Paul, it is essential to understand this and to live well today in light of that coming future. Now let me, just a quick clarification, a quick pause for clarification here. Paul is not contrasting the physical, material present with a spiritual, immaterial, ethereal future. Earth and heaven are being used here as a convenient way to contrast without needing to explain every detail of the present and the future. They use the contrast between the fallenness that exists now and the glory which will exist to come. And evidence of this, that he's not contrasting especially uh, physicality with immateriality in the future, is that what he's talking about is a resurrection of the body. The resurrection of the body of Christ and our glorious resurrection to go along with it. It attests to the physicality of the future that Paul sees. Not just an ethereal, ephemeral type thing, but the physicality of a new heavens and a new earth and the world to come. So the point that Paul is making here, and this is where it's important, is Paul's not saying, well, don't do earthly things. Like, he's not saying, just, he's not saying, well, don't do any farming and don't do any laundry, and don't do any eating or drinking. Instead of those things, do heavenly things, like singing and like prayer and like preaching. That's not what he's saying. His point is that we have to develop the mindset, the perspective, the vision that shows us that this life on earth, this life that we're experiencing right now, is not all there is. And that's critical because as we live day to day, it sure seems like to us, does it not, that this life is all there is. 
That's what it seems like. We do the same stuff day after day, and you maybe have been in the same job that you hate for the last 10 years. You may be going to school day after day. It seems like to us as we live in this world that this life is all there is. And Paul says to the Christian, no, it's not. No, it's not. You're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and you're not there yet. And you're not in that place. It's not long if you're looking at this world as all there is before you kind of look around and go, you know what, all of this being interested in the welfare of other people, all of this sacrificing, all all of the giving that takes place, I could be doing stuff that's a little more fun. I, I could be doing things that are more enjoyable to me in the present than, than, let's just, than giving a tithe, than giving an offering of the church. I could be spending stuff on myself. That's what Paul is contrasting. He's saying, listen, don't make the mistake. Don't think that this world is all there is. You've got to have your eyes fixed on the eternal kingdom and the Lord Jesus Christ who will come and return from that kingdom. So if we're going to avoid making our belly our God, consumption our goal, and the things of earth our end, if we're going to persevere well and press on well, then focusing on the eternal where Jesus is bringing all things into subjection to himself and from which he will come He will come to this world, and and to borrow language from the Isaiah passage that we looked at last week, just an image, he'll roll it up. All the stuff you think is valuable now that we think is valuable, he'll just roll it up, and it'll unroll to the new heavens and the new earth. It's an essential discipline for the people of God to look to the heavenly citizenship and to the one who will come from heaven. To put it in perhaps more precise language, eschatological hope is essential to the proper, present, practical practice of ethical Christian living. You got to have it. It's essential. You have to look to the future to live well now. All right, you want to make it practical? Uh, You know that phenomenon that takes place if you're traveling or if you've been traveling for a little bit when you wake up in the morning and you actually don't know where you are, right? We've all experienced that, right? It it takes you a couple seconds to realize, wait a minute, am I home? Am am I in a hotel? Where, Where exactly am I? What if you made it just for this week a practice? When you wake up, if you're traveling, this will be easy, um, but if you're home and you're nice warm bed and you wake up this morning, uh, each morning this week and say to yourself, I'm not home. Because you're not home. You're not home. You're not even in your home country. You got a taste of it, but we're not home yet. So there you have it. That's that's what this passage is about. The warning of destruction. There are errors out there that can consume the unaware and the unprepared. The strategy of imitation and a deliberate mindset. Salvation is of the Lord. Jesus secures our perseverance. And here's now where I want to end with this quote from the canons of the Synod of Dort. Here are the language. I think it reflects exactly what we've said and what Paul has said here. 
talking about the perseverance. This assurance of perseverance that God is going to complete the good work that he's began in you, this assurance of perseverance, however, so far from making true believers proud and carnally self-assured, is rather the true root of humility, of childlike respect, of genuine godliness, of endurance in every conflict, of fervent prayer, of steadfastness in cross-bearing and in confessing the truth, and of well-founded joy in God. Reflecting on this benefit, again, that is the perseverance of the saints, provides an incentive to a serious and continual practice of thanksgiving and good works. That assurance yields that fruit. As is evident, it concludes from the testimonies of Scripture, which we have read, and the examples of the saints, whom we should imitate. Lord, help us to do that. Errors are around us. They would destroy us. Preserve us by your grace so that we persevere therein. Help us. Help us to find people around us whom we can imitate in our lives and thank you for them. And Jesus, help us to look to you and to our heavenly citizenship. And we pray in your name. Amen. All right, let's sing together in response. 168.